This is the Advent season, and this year we're going to look at the gifts and the work of the Magi, the wise men, those men who brought gifts to the Christ child in tribute. So, in particular, we're going to look at the nature of those gifts. So let's read our scripture for the morning. First from Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And then from Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 17, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let's pray to him. Lord, we thank you for the account of the gifts of the wise men. We thank you for this staggering description of our Lord in Colossians. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our minds and hearts be pleasing to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Matthew tells us that the wise men brought treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So why these particular objects? Is this sort of the equivalent of... Uh, giving Ted Drew's frozen custard and toasted ravioli and cardinal baseball tickets. Well, there might have been a little bit more to it than that. So, the next several weeks we're going to talk about why the wise men brought these particular treasures. So, my task this morning is to address the first of these gifts brought, which is gold. So why did the wise men bring gold? And the answer is that gold is a gift most appropriate for a king. This was the practice in Israel. For instance, Solomon, who was the most powerful king in the history of Israel, accumulated gold by the time. But we also see that this was the practice throughout the Middle East to bring gold to a king. So on the screen, you're going to see an object which is um, in the British Museum in London. It's called the Black Obelisk. This Obelisk is a monument to the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser III. I know you know him. <laughs> the obelisk shows a series of panels in relief. And there's one panel in particular that is of interest to those of us who read the Bible, who read our Bible. Now, the obelisk is black on black, so it's hard to see, but I've given you a line drawing of what's on that panel this morning, and it looks like this. So over here, you can see on the left side, King Shalmaneser. He's the one with the parasol over his head and the, the drink that he's drinking. He's a man of leisure. And on the right side, you can see people of Israel who are bringing 
gifts of tribute to King Shalmaneser. So these in the back are carrying these objects. And here you see on the ground, King Yehu of Israel. He is lying flat in a posture of deference to King Shalmaneser. And there is an inscription on the panel which reads, the tribute of Yehu, son of Omri. I received, that is Shalmaneser received from Yehu, silver, gold, a golden bowl, a golden staff with pointed bottom, golden tumblers, golden buckets, tin, a staff for a king, and spears. Gold, 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 gold. In the Old Testament, in 2 Kings 9 and 10, we can read about Yehu as the king of Israel, who succeeded to the throne that had been held by Omri, mentioned in the inscription, and his dates lined up with the dates of Shalmaneser. So this is a case where we have archaeological evidence that supports the accuracy and the truthfulness of the Bible. And more to our point this morning, we can see that gold was a proper gift for a king. So, when the wise men came bringing gifts of gold, they were acknowledging the right of Jesus to rule. And this leads me to the Green Tree Sermon in a sense. So here's the Sermon in a sense this morning. The wise men acknowledged the kingship of Jesus by giving gifts of gold, challenging each of us to consider whether we have made Jesus king. So we're going to start off by spending a little time together talking about two questions about the nature of the kingship of Christ. And the first question is this, in what sense is Jesus a king? After all, if we're going to consider making him king of our lives, we need to know what kind of a king that he is. So there's a puzzle here. First, as we read the Gospels, we read that Jesus clearly exercised the authority of a king called fishermen to be his disciples, and they immediately left their nets and followed him. He healed the sick with a word. He controlled nature. He calmed the storm. He turned water into wine. And he taught with such authority that the crowds were amazed. So Jesus exercised authority as if he were a king. But the puzzle is that Jesus never held any formal office. It's my premise this morning that a good king does two things. First of all, he cares for his people. And secondly, he defeats their enemies. And Jesus, therefore, is rightly king over us because he does these things for us. So the second question is this. Is Jesus a king big enough to trust with my life? So to add to the sermon a sentence, I have a theme for the morning, and here it is. Jesus is a king big enough to be worthy of your thanks and your worship. In the 1950s, a British man named J.P. Phillips wrote a book titled, Your God is Too Small. The argument by Phillips is that many of us have a picture of God that is far too small to satisfy us, and we will never want to serve God in our heart of hearts, in our innermost being, in our subconscious, if God is too small. So what do we mean by a God who is too small? Let me give you several examples. First of all, to some people, God is the grand old man. He created the world and he set it spinning, but he is far off and he's out of touch with life as we live it. 
this is the last known photo of God the grand old man. You can see that this is in sepia because they had not yet invented color photography. Also, the grand old man doesn't really focus on it, on us, does his eyes are off. That's because the grand old man needs a nap. And he was just awakened from a nap when this picture was snapped of him, caught him off guard, and he's not focused on us. In the 1950s, there was a group of people who were surveyed about God, and they were asked a simple question. Does God understand radar? Which was then new technology. And the immediate answer was no. Oh, and then people would, would, it would there would be like an awkward silence. After all, who put the radar in the back, right? So this God, the grand old man, is not only old, he is old-fashioned. He's not able to understand technology, much less life as we live it. Then there's another God. Perhaps you believe in this God, the vending machine God. He responds with the goods when you put the coin in the slot, right? So you come to church, you, you pray some prayers, you might know a little Bible, you might even change your behavior once in a while, so long as the cost isn't too high, and God delivers by taking care of you and your family. You do your part, he does it. Then there is the moral policeman. The moral policeman is the God who exists to enforce the rules, to crack the heads of those people who do not follow the rules. This God does not show any care or compassion for you. He's only out to get you when you fail. So perhaps you have suppressed this thought of God. Perhaps you even hate him. There are many other gods who are too small. There's the god of parental hangover, the pale Galilean, and so forth and so on. So why is this important? Well, it works like this. Suppose I'm in a difficult situation, or perhaps I'm in a situation where my own desires are in opposition to God's desires. There follows frequently a wrestling match. Now, I'm about 5'11 and 175. God, as I picture him, is about 6'1 and 190. So when we go to wrestling, God usually wins, but not always. I, am, I bite. I'm slippery. And I can move quickly. So when I see God as about 6'1 and 190, we wrestle. But if I see God in his fullness, in his compassion, in his beauty, and his majesty. Some of this is settled, and I don't need to wrestle with God at all. So, we're going to look this morning at several scriptures that describe more of the kingship of Christ. There is a reason that I can have confidence that the God of the Bible is big enough. And so I'm going to add to my theme this morning. So here's the new theme. Jesus the King is big enough to be worthy of your thanks and your worship because he has made us he provides for us, and he has bought us. So during the rest of our time, we're going to look, as I said, at several scriptures that describe the kingship of Christ as creator, as provider, and the one who has bought us. Each of these is a great work and merits some contemplation and some attention. So this morning, as we go, we're going to spend some time after each of these three different sections, God as creator, provider, the one who bought us, and we're going to spend some time in profession of faith, 
in prayer and some singing. This is not our usual format. If you've never been to Green Tree, you will probably never see this again. This is new, but I know this group. This group is flexible and ready for an adventure. So, you'll see as we go along. I think you'll be able to keep up with this. Let's, let's try this together. So, the first thing we're going to talk about is an amazing idea, which is that the baby born in Bethlehem is king from all eternity, the one who created us and who knows us. And to do that, we're going to start from an Old Testament scripture that is referred to in the story of the wise men. So the wise men, you recall, come to Jerusalem, and they say, we're here to visit the king. Where is he to be born? Herod calls his advisors, and they tell Herod that the king will be born in Bethlehem. So how did they know? Well, the answer was that they had read Micah, who was a prophet who lived about 700 years before the time of Christ. And this is one of the things they read from Micah, chapter 5, verses 2 and 4. But you, O Bethlehem of who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. So as we read this prophecy, we, we read first that this is the story of a ruler. This is the king who is to come. And he is to come from the tiny town of Bethlehem. And he will be ruler over Israel. And he will be a shepherd who will guard his people with compassion and kindness. Then there's one more little fact that's in here. It says that this one is from of old, from ancient days. You see that? In fact, this king has always been. He is the eternal son of the eternal God, of whom alone it can be said, his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Indeed, when we read the account in Matthew, we see that the wise men say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When he was born, the wise men say, Jesus was a king. Have you ever thought about how unusual that is? Have you ever considered the fact that when one is born into a royal line, almost invariably, the one born must wait until the reigning monarch leaves the throne before becoming king. But not Jesus. Jesus, we're told, was born king. And he was born king because he has always been king of kings and lord of lords from all eternity. The consequences of this baby being born a king are immense. So our, our passage in Colossians 1 says this, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So the Son, of course, is Jesus. And we read here that in Jesus, in him, all things were created, everything, visible, invisible, moon, stars, you, and me. The scandal of Christmas is that Christians believe that the God who created the universe, the second person of the Trinity, was born 
a child and a king, and lived among us. So what does that mean for us? Well, I'm going to refer you to my son-in-law, John. This is my granddaughter, Ellie, and her father, John. And on a periodic basis, they have pancake morning. This, you can see, is pancake morning. There's great ritual to making pancakes, and it includes a song. You gotta hear the song, you gotta be in, in the mood, so it goes like this. Making pancakes, making eggy pancakes, making pancakes, making eggy pancakes. So everybody's got around, and in the middle of making eggy pancakes, a theology lesson breaks out. And it goes like this. Ellie remembers that the last time they made eggy pancakes, that John was burned on the skillet. And so she says to John, Daddy, how's your owie? And John says, he looks at his owie and says, it's much better. And then he says, isn't it cool that Jesus made our bodies so that they heal themselves? Did you hear the theology lesson? The theology lesson is that Jesus, the one who was born a child and a king, made our bodies and he made them so that they heal themselves. And then he took on flesh and lived a life very much like the lives that we live. So Jesus experienced the loss of his good friend Lazarus. He knew the pleasure of a good party. He knew what it was like to be hungry and thirsty and to have dirty feet. Perhaps your God is the grand old man, you know, the one who is out of touch, who has, who is far away. So what about the grand old man? Well, if the grand old man were my grandpa, that'd be just fine. <laughs> if he were my next door neighbor, I'd probably show him his driveway from time to time. But as God of the universe and king of my life, grand old man, you're fired. So, let us please stop here for just a moment. And would you please stand with me? We're going to spend a few minutes in confession of our faith, in prayer, and then we're going to sing. So, this is from the Nicene Creed, which is one of the earliest statements of the Christian faith. Christians, who do you understand the baby born in Bethlehem to be? We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally God of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, the God from not made, among being with the Father, through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Let's pray for this moment. God, we thank you that you do not stand far off, that you are not removed from us, but you have loved us so well that you have created us. You were born a child and then experienced life much as we do. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. This Advent song we're about to sing reminds us that Jesus was the long-expected king from ancient days, and that he was both born and a child, and is our king. You may be seated. We turn our attention now 
to the Jesus who not only created us, but who provides for us. So we'll read from John chapter 6. A large crowd was following him because they saw the sign that he was doing on the sick. And seeing the, the, the large crowd, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. During his ministry, there were huge crowds that followed Jesus, and they had to eat somehow. And so Jesus took five loaves and the two fish and made a meal for 5,000, all they wanted, and 12 baskets left over. For some of us, it's hard to see Jesus at work providing for us in the same way. After all, you think, I'm smart. I work hard. I delayed my gratification to get a graduate degree. I hold the family together while my spouse hits the road to make a living. So I'm the one who holds this group together. We have earned this. But let's go back to Colossians. I've now added verse 17. So it starts off, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Then dropping down to the last line, He, the Son, is therefore, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You see it there? In Him all things hold together. Not only did Jesus create us, he holds everything together. He's the one who sustains us. He's the one who provides for commerce. He's the one who holds together educational institutions which grant graduate degrees. He's given me my home, my car. He's the one who knits the bond between husband and wife and holds families together. It is right that we should thank him for all that he does in providing for us, and in a minute we're going to do so. So we're going to have some prayers from the congregation about things that you are thankful for, things that God has provided for you. But, before we do that, I want to look at one little verse that's at the end of the passage that we've just read. And it's this. It says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So, the people following Jesus had seen him heal the sick. Now they saw him provide food, and they saw his power, and they knew that he could accomplish one more task for them. That is that he could free them from the oppression of Rome. You see, if Jesus were made king, there was nothing that stood in the way of their liberation. And yet it is at just this point that Jesus withdrew. So perhaps you believe in the vending machine God. You know, the one you put in the coin at the bottom and he gives you the goods. You put the coin in at the top, he gives you the, the, the goods at the bottom. And he responds to what you do. But Jesus will not be used by us. 
he is too big to be confined to our plans and he will not be used for our small purposes. So, vending machine guy, I'm working late, I'm happy to see you spitting out the Coca-Cola, but as God of the universe, you are off the island. <laughs> so, we come now to a time of congregational prayer. So, what did you pray for on Thanksgiving, or what were you silently thankful for? I would ask you please, if there are people here who recognize and want to speak about God's provision for them in one or two sentence prayers, please do so. So this will be up to you how long we go. If there are children here and you want to pray, I'm happy to hear what God is doing for you. So your pets, perhaps your, your, uh, your school teacher that you're thankful for, perhaps even a brother or sister that might be stretching it. So. <laughs> Let me pray for us, and then anyone who wishes to do so, please pray one or two sentence prayers for a while. So, thank you, Lord, that you have provided for our need. You are the, the God to whom we can be thankful for your kindness to us. We pray this in your name. Please join me, anyone who wishes to, to pray. For the gathering of family members. God, thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you for our children. Lord, thank you for our new facilities. <coughs> I thank you for answering prayers. Thank you for always giving us what we need and sometimes what we want when you are needs. Far greater than Lord, thank you for your provision for us. Thank you for the prayers that have been spoken this morning and those that are felt in our hearts. We pray these things in your name. So please rise with me and let's sing. Now let's turn our attention to Jesus the King, who loves us so much that he has bought us. From John chapter 18, he, that is Pontius Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out carrying his own cross. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, 
I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. It was not until the last week of his life that Jesus permitted himself to be publicly acknowledged as king. But on Palm Sunday, Jesus made his entry into Jerusalem in the manner of a king, as foretold by the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. Pontius Pilate declared Jesus king, and even though the religious authorities objected, Pilate had spoken and written the truth. On the day that he died, Jesus was mocked as he wore a crown of thorns and held the scepter of a king. It was a thief on the cross next to Jesus who was dying, who acknowledged Jesus as king, saying, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Some may object that Jesus had no control over what was said about him or done to him on that day, but as we read the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus considered himself to be in complete authority over all that happened that day. So, let's look at one more verse from Colossians. This is the introductory verse, verse 13. He, that is God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, he has saved us from our sins, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son. It is by his death that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the responsibilities of a king. You recall that the good king cares for his people and defeats their enemies. On the cross, Jesus defeated the ancient enemies of humankind, sin and death, once and for all, so that we could be in right relationship with God forever. This is the final triumph of the king. He has loved us so well that he has bought us for himself. So, perhaps you've thought of God as the moral policeman, cracking heads, arresting those who violate the rules. But at the cross, we see the foolishness of the moral policeman as we have entered to the kingdom of God based entirely on the work of God. So when you stand with me once more, please. And we'll read again from the Nicene Creed. Christian, how did Jesus act as king? For our, our sake, sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again for the work of his scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that Jesus went to the cross to conquer sin death and the dominion of darkness so that we could enter the kingdom of God. Let's sing together. So what does it mean to make Jesus king? How do we apply this idea that Jesus is king to real life? Quite simply, to make Jesus king is to agree that you trust him to rule your life. You trust him to be master over your money, over your marriage, over your children, over your work, over your relationships, your time, all of life falls under the kingship of Christ. Now, I could tell you a lot more about this, but I think rather than do that, I'm going to refer you to a couple of friends. Bruce and Charlotte Abernathy are members of Green Tree. Bruce is an elder, and I'm going to ask you to listen and hear their story. 
My name is Bruce Abernathy, my wife Charlotte. We've been at Green Tree approximately 11 years. Um, I am an elder. Years past, uh, I was in the insurance business for many years, retired two years ago. And um, we'd like to um, talk about the situation that happened approximately five years ago. You know, our, our life was good. Uh, business was good, family was good, marriage was good. Um, I, my faith was, was I, I guess, iffy is probably the best way to do it. Uh, I think I believe in Christ. I, it wasn't the, uh, the forefront of my thought. It was something that's, that's sitting back there that, yes, I, I believe in Jesus Christ, and if I need this, it will probably be there. Where Charlotte was, was different. Uh, she had, had been several years in BSF. Her faith was very strong. Uh, uh, she put her hands uh, uh, with the Lord. And, uh, or I did, I really thought that I had done most of this. Uh, in building my business, my family, religion was uh, something we did that was not one of the most important things in my life. Uh, and then we got that, uh, the phone call. In 2011, phone call came about 6.20 in the morning. Our son-in-law called, was crying. Uh, said our, our grandson had been unresponsive, he was on his way to the hospital, they were following the ambulance. So we headed out to St. Luke's, got there, Bruce dropped me off at the door of the ER, I ran inside, and they pointed me in the direction of the examining room, and I got in there, the room was full of doctors. Uh, my daughter and son-in-law were at the head of our little grandson, Connor. Um, he had tubes uh, and wires uh, everywhere. Um, and it didn't look like him. And I thought they made a mistake. This isn't this isn't Connor. Uh, he had an odd expression on his face. And I realized in a moment that he was not with us, that his soul was gone. That this what I what I was looking at was just a shell. And right after that, one of the doctors called it. I laid my hands on him and did say a prayer for his little soul. Because I knew, I knew his soul was with God. I just felt God's strength and um, I felt him walking along beside me, you know, and, and the tears that I was crying, I knew that he was, he was feeling those tears as well. And why it happened, I, you know, there was no explanation for that, but I did feel a huge amount of comfort and strength almost right away. At that time, the doctors had pronounced counter, and my daughter was sitting there crying, uh, holding the body. And I had to walk out. Uh, and I walked uh, out the parking lot, and uh, uh, they started walking around the parking lot, and here's what here's what I had read. You know, uh, uh, I, I wasn't sure I had the faith, and what would happen with when we were tested. So I started walking around the parking lot and, and talking out loud, actually kind of kind of yelling, I guess. Uh, you know, God, where are you? You know, we need you now, and, and you uh, abandoned us, and. Uh, and then it was God, why did this happen? I walked out there for 45 minutes and uh, gradually saying, God, you know, uh, uh, please bless Connor and be with him and help him and, and God, please help my daughter. Uh, at that point, I, I started praying to God that uh, my daughter and son-in-law would get through this and that uh, you know, we would be a family and not torn apart. Uh, came in and was at peace with, with God. Uh, realized that God was in charge here. And uh, 
and that he was going to help my family. I just had the feeling that, that God was going to take over. It was a tough, tough couple, six months. January is still a rough month for us. A, a rough month and a good month. Uh, it's the, the month that my grandson Jacob was born, so we have a birthday to celebrate, and it's the month that um, Kyber died. And, and, and you know, I, I guess the final takeaway on this is that um, uh, our belief is strong enough and uh, God is, is, is large enough that no matter what the tragedy is, um, He will protect us and give us truth to it. Um, and not only got us through it, but we are closer as a family. We are closer to God as a family. And um, I no longer doubt my faith in God. If you say that, I've heard, I've seen that several times. I still get emotionally testified. If you see Bruce and Charlotte, please thank them for being willing to share their story with us. So let me ask you, is God king of your life? You can see how this works out, right? Charlotte had, a, this is a settled issue, that she could trust God, that God was big enough, so she felt peace almost immediately. But for Bruce, he still had to wrestle with this. And God was gracious to Bruce, but I think he's a changed man now from what he was before. Let me tell you that you were made to trust in a big God. Jesus is that God. He is so much bigger than any of those small gods that we might carry around in our minds and hearts. He is the God who has created us and knows us. He's the God who provides for us but will not be used by us. He is the God who has bought us. So let me ask you this morning, is he your king? God calls people to be faithful to his kingdom. He doesn't call perfect people. He calls people who will be faithful to him as king. So please let's stand and sing together. Announcements. Don't forget to get a mint either out here or in the atrium. If you haven't returned your pledge card, please do so. Come on Tuesday night for carols and cocoa. And now receive the Lord's benediction, which I gladly offer in his name. Now may the Lord, who has created you, who provides for you, and who has bought you, may he give you peace during this holiday season and forevermore. Amen? Amen? No. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs>